over the past few weeks, um, looking through the Advent season and Christmas, we, uh, we considered the coming of Christ, and uh, we considered as well the gifts of God that he has given to us, kind of a fun thing at Christmas time, we get gifts when it's Jesus' birthday, you know, we should be the ones giving him gifts, and, um, but as we've talked about that, and we talked about that Christ's coming, that it was not a mystery, um, one that should have taken them by surprise. God had been dropping hints for 4,000 years that, that Christ was coming. And yet, when he came, it took them by surprise. Um, even Herod, when, he, when the wise men came, he went to the, the priests, the high priests and the scribes and asked where the Messiah was to be born. And they came right up and said, Bethlehem, Judea, that's where it's going to happen. But they never went. They didn't go to, to receive the newborn king. They just let it go. And so, in the Word of God, there is much of indications, portents, um, types looking toward the coming of Christ. And we want to look at those um, through this next year. Over the next 22 weeks or so, or at least 22 messages, Lord willing, um, we're going to look at um, 22 of those uh, types, portents, and indicators throughout the Old Testament of Christ's coming, of who Christ would be when he came. And uh, there's no greater place to, to start than in the beginning, right? And uh, um, in Genesis 1.1, Steve read this morning about the, the creation account, and the, the, the greatest thing that we can ever say or see about Christ is that he is the creator God. Um, everyone understands, that, at least if they've given some assent to the fact that there is a God, that he must be the creator. And so the, the big thing when you go to talk to Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and such like that is they're willing to say that Jesus is a God and that he might even have been involved in the creation, but he's not the only true God. And the fact is that God has stated that as the creator, he is the one and only true God. And as we're going to see this morning, Jesus is that God. He is, he is that one that we're going, to, we're going to be looking at. And so we want to begin looking at the shadow of Christ, if you would. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that, that the writings of Moses were given to us um, as, as a shadow of the things to come, and that would be Christ. And so if you're there in Genesis 1, hopefully you're there in Genesis 1, we want to look at the beginning. There we go. In the beginning. Okay. I could see it on my screen, but I couldn't see it up there, and I was trying to figure out what was going on, what, what, what the problem was. But as we look in Genesis 1 then, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation account. And the first thing we see um, in that creation account was the origin of life, the origin of life. Now, this is, a, again, a, a great debate in our world today. I don't know why it is, but it is. Now, there's a lot of people who, by faith, want to believe that the worlds were framed by a Big Bang by a bunch of gases coming together. And that's always fun to me, because I always like to ask the question, where did the gas come from? You know, I mean, they can ask me, where did God come from? And I'm it's very content to say what? I don't know, God always was. But gas is still something that's what? Physical, it's material. And so if you're saying that it's something material, what, where did that come from? And so, anyways, that, the passage in Hebrews 11, verse 1 um, talking about what faith is the evidence of things unseen, is the descriptor of all what religion is. And religion is faith. Um, I believe in creation by faith. 
Now, I believe there's evidence that's out there, but ultimately, when we come down to the fact of creation, I'm going to accept Genesis 1-1 by what? By faith, okay? No one was there other than God, okay? But if you discount God, I'm not saying I discount God, but if, if you discount God, then there's nobody who was there. Does that make sense? Okay? Well, and so it's the same thing with the Big Bang or any other um, hypothesis, not theory. The, the term, the theory of evolution is, is, a, is wrong. A theory, in order for something to be a theory, um, a hypothesis has to be proven at some place. Evolution has never been proven in any place. And so it could not have ever attained the rank of a theory according to the laws of science. That's an important thing. Creation is a well, is a hypothesis. Okay, this is an important thing for us to understand. And that's, I'm okay with that. People, people look at me, huh? It's okay. I know it's a fact. But according to the, 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 the realm of science and in, in the, in the, in the discovery of what God has created, the reality is that stating its creation is it's a hypothesis from that realm. But in the origin of life, we see that it is creation. And in that, we see the mode of creation is that God created ex nihilo. What that means is out of nothing. Okay? And so we see in Hebrews chapter 3 that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. That is a direct confrontation to any materialistic science that's out there. God created not from anything that was there. So even if you have theistic evolution, which says that God created using evolutionary means, that's not right. Because God says that he, did, he created from things which are not visible. And we know from Genesis 1 that God what? Said. God spoke. God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. God said, let the waters divide from the waters above from the waters beneath. And what happened? They did it. God said, let the waters be gathered together and the dry land appear. What happened? The waters gathered together and the dry land appeared. God said, let there... It's kind of like Simon says, isn't it? You know, Simon said, you know. But, but God said, let, let the, let the um, vegetation burst forth onto the dry ground. And what happened? Vegetation burst forth onto the dry ground. And then God did something really kind of fun. On day four, he made the sun, the moon, the stars. Do you know why he waited day four? That's exactly right. In the, in, the, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be no need for the sun and the moon. Why? God himself will be the light. Yeah, God put those there for our, for our benefit, for our purpose, but it's not necessary. We think of them as being necessary, and as all a science, we say, oh man, the sun is so necessary. Well, in a sense, from everything we understand, it is, because we what? We revolve around it. It gives us the heat. Okay? God put all that out there, but the fact is that God didn't create it until day four. Isn't that mind-boggling? What happened on day one, two, and three? When we get there, maybe we can, he'll, he'll give us a little science class and let us know how he did all that. But, you know, when we get there, we probably won't care, will we? Anyways, but in Psalm 33, verse 6, we're told that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So God created out of nothing, and God created by just his word. I'm mindful, there's a little aside here, of Jesus talking to the disciples when they couldn't heal the, uh, um, the boy that had the demon on him that kept throwing him in the fire and stuff like that. And uh, Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And he immediately healed the boy. And um, later they said, you know, why couldn't we do that? And he said, well, this kind comes by prayer and fasting. And he called him little of faith. He says, but if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say 
to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea, and it would be done for you. Isn't that interesting? It's just the power of the, the spoken word. Now, I don't believe that I can just walk out and say to the post office, you know, go downtown, and, and all of a sudden there's going to be, you know, electrical lines kind of leading no, out of nowhere and everything because the building's gone, and it's, it's, all of a sudden it materializes, materializes downtown. But if God wanted me, for some reason, to move that building downtown, guess what? It would happen. Does that make sense? Faith. Faith. Faith is the key to all things. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. It's the substance of things hoped for. That's what this whole series is going to be looking at, is, is, is looking at Christ. Christ is really the key of all that. And um, Back in the introduction, I didn't share it, but throughout the scriptures and theology, there's, there's this great debate over what is the, the overarching um, uh, purpose of scripture. Some would say it's doxological, which means it's to the glory of God, that God receives glory. Some would say it's it's soteriological, which means it's of salvation, that Scripture was written for, for man, for salvation. And I, 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 I think that, as a whole, it's Christological, which means that it's focused on, on Christ, which brings doxology and soteriology, okay, if you're following those big words, together. Because, think about it, in Christ, when he was incarnate, remember, in the fullness of time, right? We're, we're told, we memorized that last month. That, that God sent forth, in fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law. And so there was a purpose of, for time. And in the fullness, in the, full, the, the whole completion of time, when no more time, no more seconds could fit into the cup of time, of history, God came into the earth. And so all of history was looking forward to Christ's coming. And even now, think about it, all of history is looking twofold, back to the cross for salvation, but also to the second coming. And so, Jesus said while he was on the earth that his purpose was to do what? Not just the will of his Father, but why would he do the will of his Father? No. Somebody else? Bring God glory. To glorify God. That's exactly right. He would glorify the Father by doing the Father's will. And the Father's will was what? That all men would be saved. Do you see it? And so it all fits together. I mean, we sit here and we, we, we kind of battle over minor points sometimes, and it's kind of like, why do we do this, you know? I mean, the Word of God is, is, is consistent all the way through. And so Christ is the focus of all of history. And the Father has allowed that. But we have to accept it based on faith. I've talked to a guy recently um, who understands that. He, he, he can go down a whole lot of lines of arguments, but he knows that he has to make the decision to believe. It's not just a matter of knowing all the facts. He has to make the decision that by faith, he's going to believe and trust it. What was the period of creation? Well, we we're see in Genesis 1 that creation took six days. Now, we always say seven days, but think about it. Creation itself took six days. And on the seventh day, what? God rested. So on day one, God made light. Day two, he separated waters above, waters beneath. Day three, he made the dry land appear and all the vegetation. Day four, he made the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he made the fish and the birds. Um, day six, he made the, the creeping things of the earth and the beasts of the field. And then he made his crowning creation. And that was man. Man. And he said that he would make, he made man 
in woman, okay, male and female, he created them, and he made them in his image, and in his likeness he gave them dominion over all the, over all the rest of the creation. But it was only man, only humankind, that God made in his image and in his likeness. Plants, we've talked about this in the past, but plants, they have, they have a body, they have flesh. They eat, they drink, they breathe, but they don't communicate. Some people think they do, but anyways, plants don't communicate. But they do have a body, they are living things. And animals, the next stage up, they have bodies. Yes, they eat, they drink, they breathe, but animals also what? They communicate. They talk to one another. Have you ever gone hunting and just sat in a tree for a while? It's kind of fun to, 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 to watch the squirrels play and to chatter and talk to each other. And you don't want them to know that you're sitting in the tree watching them because then they'll do what? They'll give you away. They'll communicate. They'll communicate that the rest of the forest, man, is in the forest, you know. Be careful, Bambi. And um, anyways, um, so... So while, while I'm sitting there, like the other day, you know, I've got one right underneath my tree and I'm just watching it, but I don't want to be moving around because I don't want him to communicate. While well, animals communicate, they have a soul. But you never saw a bunch of cats get together and have a prayer meeting, nor did you have a bunch of dogs get together a worship service, nor did you ever have a, a horse, at least that anyone we've talked to. Gabriel, any of the horses you've talked to ever wonder where they came from, where they're going? No, okay. Gabriel likes to talk to horses. I'm not quite sure about that. Anyways, but, and, uh, and, Alpacas. Anyways, um, so, but the fact is, animals don't have a spirit. They're not made in the image and likeness of God. They have no concern about the spiritual realm. Man, on the other hand, has the body. We eat, drink, breathe. We have a soul. We communicate with one another. And we then are made in the image of God. We have a spirit. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so we have this spirit. We're made in his likeness as well. And so the period of creation is, is six days. Now, hopefully... You know, you all believe this, but I know that there have been times in the past we've had people in the body that don't believe that. And you can believe what you want to believe. You stand before God on your own, and you can be wrong if you want to be, okay? Because God's account is, is, is straight up, okay? Now, when you look at that period of account, God states specifically that it's six 24-hour days, and he lets us know that because of how he words everything. First of all, he says that when he makes day one, he made light, and he separated the light from the darkness, right? And he called the light what? day, and he called the darkness, he called night, and then he said there was evening, night, darkness, and there was morning, the first what? So how did God define a day? A period of darkness, a period of light. That's exactly right. Okay. So if, if a day, if a yom, which it can be, and it's, it could be an extended period of time, the day of the Lord, you know, we're not talking about a specific 24-hour period of the Lord, we're talking about a, an era, a period. And so if yom is taken there to be just a, a general period of time, how would I have to divide that general period of time? A long period of darkness and a long period of light. And so if one of, every one of those days is a million years, that means you've got 500,000 years of darkness and 500,000 years of light. God was very clear in how he delineated those days for us. And then when he comes into day four, he splits it up even further by telling us about the sun, the moon, and the stars and says that these are going to be those things which roll over that period of day and that period of night. Um, I remember growing up being told that evolution and, and the Bible could go hand in hand, and it's, it's not true. It just cannot go hand in hand. Evolution is based upon the fact that there is death before mankind ever exists. But we know that death is a result of what? Man's sin, which we'll talk about next week. 
but that's exactly right. And so we know that that can't be the case. So the period of creation is six 24-hour days, and then the seventh day God rested. Now, in the, the significance of this, we looked at the synopsis of it, but in the significance of, of creation is this next two statements, and that is that a rejection of God's creation is the first step in man's rejection of God himself. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, to we read, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That sounds pretty good. But go on. It says, For this they will fully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world then existed, perished, being flooded with water. Mankind cannot deny that there is an earth. We live on it. There is creation from that perspective. That's not a debate. It's the source of creation that becomes the debate. And so notice there, they'll even discuss all things continue as they were from the beginning of what? Creation. Put in the word nature. From the start. From the big bang, potentially. Do you understand? I mean, you can put whatever you want in there. Because the next statement is, is the key. For this they willfully, willfully forget, and we're going to talk about this in a moment on the next passage, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. What's the debate? <coughs> not, whether, not whether there's creation, not whether there's nature around us, but what? How did it come about? God did it. Right. They just don't want to give God credit for it. And again, this is so key, because I said in the beginning, this is, God being the creator is the core of who he is. He is the creator. He is the one who made us. And so, to deny then creation is to deny God. And so, in Romans chapter 1, turn here with me. In Romans 1, we see this played out more, and then God's response to it as well. Romans chapter 1. He says, for the wrath of God, beginning of verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, but God has, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without Excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them, also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. We can stop there before we get into all the vile passions. More we told that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Against what? Unrighteousness. But what is the unrighteousness of men really defined as? Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. How? Worshipping the creature rather than the 
creator. It's the rejection, the denial of God as the creator. Do you get it? I mean, it's the base thing that man knows. Knows what it says there, that God has placed within them knowledge of him. I believe the word of God. I don't know about you. And so I believe that everybody on the face of the earth, that God has given to them some witness of his existence. God is just when he condemns. Do you understand? If God would not give a witness, how would they be how could they hurt here? Isn't that what Romans 10 is all about? But God has given a witness. And, and Paul says right in the beginning in Romans chapter 1 that the primary witness that he gives them is from within. He gives them a witness from inside their conscience. He gives them a witness in creation. And then as we play out the book of Romans, he gives us a witness through his word as well, through the testimony of Jesus Christ. But that means that that, that individual living in a tribe in South America or in Africa or in, in, in Asia or wherever, who may not have ever had a missionary, quote-unquote, come to him, is still responsible for what? The knowledge of God that they've been given. That's exactly right. They may not know of Jesus Christ, but they'll know that there's a creator God. Does that make sense? And it's when man rejects that because... To know that there is a creator God means that ultimately there is somebody that you're going to what? Give an account to. And that doesn't sound appealing to Banana Man. You know? I don't want to stand before anybody. I don't want to give an account to anybody. I want to live my own life, right? And so, in order to do that, what do I got to do? Get rid of God. So I get rid of God, and I can do what? I live my life how I want to. The sad thing is, by getting rid of God, what did I really do? Nothing. Because I what? I couldn't get rid of God. I can say I'm getting rid of God, but does it get rid of God? And that's why Paul says they were foolish. They're foolish. I mean, think about it. What would you think if your, if your child said something like that to you? You know, okay, I'm, mommy's gone now. Mommy's gone. Boop. There's no more. I mean, mommy's standing right there. You know, you think what? Well, first of all, the child's just playing. But then if the child continued to want to act like that, you'd say what? You're crazy. You're foolish. How goofy can you be? That's what man is like. And so the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. And that's the core of all rebellion. And God says that when man then denies him as the creator, he will then reject man. And when he rejects man and places his wrath upon man, what he does is, not volitional, what he does is allows us to do it to ourselves. He hands us over to our own lasciviousnesses. He says, fine, you don't want to have a God that you're accountable to? You be your own God. You see what you can do. And so what does man do when man is God? He self-destructs. And the very base form of this wrath of God is the advancement of homosexuality. I don't believe in political messages, but clearly, we as a nation have hit that low oil, y'all. It's only a matter of time right now until homosexual marriage is accepted throughout the 50 states. That was the big deal about getting accepted in the, in the military. 
it's already accepted in a couple states. It will now move forward. Because the military is what? Federal. It's everywhere. And because it's federal, the federal government will get involved no matter what state you're in. No matter what community you're in. Because it's a hate crime. America is not experiencing the blessings of God. I, I just don't know how to say that. Very clearly according to the word of God, it's the wrath of God that we're experiencing. When we exchange the use of what God has created for us for one that's like our own, then that's the evidence of the wrath of God being poured upon us. Now, we talked about the origin of life, the order of life, and that kind of leads us to this next step here, that God established in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in order. God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. And the first thing he did was he established a pattern for, for work. And we see that being brought out in, in Genesis, or Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20 when, when we're told in the, the Ten Words of the Covenant or the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy for in six days God what? worked, and the seventh day he rested. And so the pattern for us is that we're supposed to what? Work for four and a half days. Three days. You give me two? Anyone want to give me one? We shouldn't work at all, right? I mean, that's, isn't that the, the American ideal? Is to get to the place where what? You don't have to work. All you have to do is play. Because play is a four-letter word too, right? I mean, so it's, we can just interchange one with the other. God Establish us to be productive people. To work for six days and the seventh day to rest. A seventh day to focus upon Him. Honestly, I'm like you. And I would love to work less and less and less and less and less. I'm lazy. I'm inherently, I'm sluggardishly. I'm a sluggard. And and, you know, we don't want, like to admit that. You certainly wouldn't want somebody to call you a sluggard, would you? Well, you're all sluggard, aren't you? But if, if, if we analyzed ourselves and we were honest, we would understand that we want to play. We don't want to work. But God established us to work. In fact, the first thing he did with man before he ever made woman was what? Put him in, assigned him work. He put him in the garden and said, tend my garden. He put him to work. God established a pattern for work. You can read Ephesians chapter 6 some other time, but talking about the um, employees or servants and the masters or the employers and how we're supposed to deal in the workplace. But we're not supposed to work with eye service as men pleasers, but rather we're supposed to be working as unto the Lord. Understanding that God ultimately is the, my employer. God ultimately is the one who, who is my master. And so as a master, as one who employs other people, if that's you, I have to treat them with the same respect that I expect God to treat me. Because I'm going to give an account to them as well. Secondly, he established a pattern for, for marriage. And very clearly, he made Adam and Eve. He didn't make Adam and Steve. God designed marriage, and he made it a special point to make the woman. He made, he made Adam, <clears throat> then he 
he brought all the animals to Adam for Adam to name. And Adam was able to see that every single one of those animals had a, a helper, a, a counterpart. But he didn't. So after all that happened, God put him asleep and he took from his side and made Eve and brought Eve to him. A special gift. Isn't that neat? If God, think about it, if God wanted this to be opened up, what would he have done? He made asexual people. We wouldn't, you know, there would be no need. You'd have interchangeable. But God has a specific plan. Now, the importance of this is, and we're not going to get into this, but just as a little side thought, is that marriage, in its greatest context, is a picture of Christ and the church. I, in my relationship to Marcia, demonstrate how Christ treats the church. Now, you should be thankful that Christ doesn't treat you like I treat my wife sometimes. Okay? I'm not what? I'm not perfect in that. But I always have that in my mind, that what I'm doing is, is demonstrative of how I believe Christ should treat the church. That's Ephesians chapter 5. And Marcia demonstrates to the world how the church is supposed to submit unto Christ. Probably not always perfect that either, huh? Eh, just once in a while. I think five years ago there was a time when you... Anyways. Um, but the reality is that we have to keep that as a forefront. And so why do you think then there's an attack upon the marriage institute? From the beginning, God created it to be so. And Paul said, for this reason, Ephesians 5, he's talking about, he says, wives submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord, and husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for. And he goes on, he says, he says, um, he says for this cause a man shall leave his, his, his father and his mother and be cleaved on his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. He says, but this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So all the way back, in the beginning, as a part of the created order, God was putting things out there as types, as pictures that he would fulfill later on. So husbands, a little freebie, a little side thing here. Are you loving your wife like Christ loved the church? I mean, that's how God created that pattern. And ladies, before you say, no, boy, you don't know him. Are you submitting unto him like the church is supposed to submit unto Christ? Not like the church submits unto Christ, because we buck against his authority too. But are you submitting unto your husband like the church is supposed to be submitting unto the Lord? Now, what's the prophetical side of this? There are prophetical significance in all this. The first one is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And I purposely put the Lord as it is there. Because, again, in your English translations, whenever you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it really says what? Yahweh. And so, Jesus is Yahweh of the, of the Sabbath. In Mark 2, we read, And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, in, in the New Testament, in the Greek, there is no word, no transliteration for Yahweh. Um, Hebrews, the Jews, would 
used the term Adonai in the Hebrew, which meant Lord, because they were afraid of using Yahweh's name in vain, without meaning. And so instead of referring to Yahweh, they would refer to Adonai, which is Lord. Adonai, bringing it over into the Greek, is Kyrios, which is the word Lord. And so when he says in verse 28, therefore the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath, that's the word Kyrios. But it's interesting, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20, that we're told that Yahweh is the Yahweh, that the Sabbath belongs to Yahweh, is Yahweh Sabbath, that it's Yahweh Shabbat, that it is, it is Yahweh who is the one who is the ruler over the, the Sabbath. So when Jesus, this is huge, when Jesus turns around to these people, he's healing on the Sabbath, and they said, who do you think you are? He says, you need to know that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you know what he was telling them? I'm God. They got it. The Jews got it. Because there was only one Lord of Shabbat, and that was Yahweh. And Jesus was declaring to be Yahweh at that moment. Now, this is key, because we're told that man was not made for the Sabbath. In other words, God, God didn't make this Sabbath thing and decide he wanted to be worshipped. And so he made man. Well, I made, you know, I created all this stuff, so I might as well make man, else I have somebody worship me on my Sabbath. But rather, he made Sabbath for the man. Do you get it? Why do you think God made Sabbath for man? Say it louder. Someone said something. Because we need it. For what, Brooke? Rest. And to focus on him. Listen, I mean, I don't know about you. I know I'm supposed to be the pastor. I'm the super spiritual one. And so I've just spent the last 24 hours a day, seven days a week, focusing fully on God. Even in my, my sleep, you know, I'm, I, I am supernaturally above anybody else, and I just meditate upon God the whole time, and when I walk in the aura, it just kind of presents itself. No, actually, you don't want to get near me with my bronchitis today because you'll find out it's, it's not that. No, I mean, we all, in life, have things going on in life that distract us from, from God. And God knew that we needed time to stop and to be still and to know that He is God. Times of recreation, recreation, renewing ourselves physically and spiritually. That's why he made it such a big deal for Israel when he told them, he says, you should do no work on the Sabbath day. Why did he know man's natural inclination was going to be? Abuse the day. That's exactly right. <coughs> I'm sorry, what? We work at our play. Yes, we do. Computers are supposed to make things a whole lot easier, weren't they? It just makes more things i got to do. And so God made a big deal about that. And, and I know that New Testament side, we say, oh, that's, that's Old Testament. The Sabbath is Old Testament. I don't think so. I think the Saturday observance for Israel, was, was important for Israel. It was a sign for Israel. But God created the heavens and the earth and made the seventh day for rest before he ever made Israel. Make sense? And God established it and went back to that created order when he talked about the Sabbath and said that it was there for man so that we would have a day to rest. I think it was the French. I used to think it was the Russians, but I... I I checked on it. I think it was the French 
who tried to redo the, the calendar years ago, and they tried to make a 10-day work week so they get more work out of people. It didn't work. Isn't that interesting? That we understand, I mean, just in, how, in life, we have a seven-day work week, or a seven-day calendar week. And it goes all the way back to creation. And we deny it. Isn't that mind-boggling? I was in the van a few months ago with some of the kids we pick up on Wednesday nights. And um, we had a discussion um, that started someplace else. It was kind of the rabbit trail kind of conversation that was going on. And so we started discussing creation and evolution as a result of it. And, and I started going through, oh, well, in fact, let me stop there. And I, I, I presented, you know, like a cell phone. You find a cell phone out in the woods, you're not going to think that it just evolved there. You're going to know that it was a created thing, right? And from behind me, this one kid says to me, he says, wow, you're saying that God created us. Now, that sounds pretty basic to most of us. It wasn't to him. That was eye-opening. You're saying God created us. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm saying. And so then I went through Genesis 1. You know, and, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and there was the morning, and there was day. And I went through those seven days of God's creation. And when I was done, the same kid says, that's where we get our week. It's not rocket science. You get a fourth grader who understands it. All he has to do is be told, to be taught. Jesus said that you have faith like a what? Like a child. We become adults and we want to overanalyze things. As I was talking before, we've got to quit overanalyzing things. God, God, God's pretty clear in his word. Why, why do we try to keep finding hot, hidden things and stuff like that? God, God has got it all right there for us. So, Jesus is Yahweh of the Sabbath. But, even more importantly then, because of what the Sabbath indicated is, is that Jesus is the Lord of a creation. And that's the idea. For him to be the Lord of the Sabbath meant that he had to be the Lord of creation. Turn with me to Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And again, if you've been here long enough, you know that Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 48 are, are my chief passages to prove the deity of Christ. I don't worry about the New Testament passages because people are going to discount the New Testament. But Yahweh himself declares so many things that are fulfilled in Christ, and if Christ is not Yahweh, um, then the Word of God is a lie as a whole. And I'm not just not being a Christian. I'm not being a Jew. I'm just not being anything. I mean, I don't know what I'd be. I mean, I can't go to the place of being an atheist because I know there's a God, but I'm not sure what I'd be at that point. I mean, God's Word is true, you know? And, um, but in Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 21, it says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understand... Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing and makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom, then, will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, in the greatness of his might, in the strength of his power. Not one 
is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my, my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. Okay. <clears throat> a couple times throughout this passage, we're told this, and this is just one passage, we're going to look at another one in a moment. What do you know from this passage? Who's the creator? Yahweh. What else do you know about Yahweh? Not only is he the creator, but what else is he? He's the everlasting God. He's the eternal God. He's the one who was and is and ever shall be. Does that make sense? This is very important because, um, again, a Jehovah Witness, you know, or I mean, a Mormon now, they, they keep morphing their theologies, you know, and, um, and so now, you know, they, they're willing to say that Jesus is Yahweh, but he's not the eternal one. What did Yahweh say? He's the everlasting God. You can't split the hairs on me. They hate me when I, when I go here. I mean, I, I don't want to be rude. But this is the word of God. And Yahweh says he's the everlasting God, and he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one who spread them out. Is there any, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't see any way to, to change that any other way. That's what he is. Chapter 42, verse 5. <coughs> Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. All right, so now we're not just told that he's the, he's the creator, but what else are we told? He's the one who created you and me. He gave breath to not only Adam, okay? Did you see that? He didn't just give breath to Adam, you know, because he breathed in the... To, to Adam, the Ruach, the spirit of life. Okay, that's what it says there in Genesis chapter 2. And he, and he breathed into him the Ruach, the breath of life. Actually, it's the spirit of life. I think it's when he became a spirit being. It's that word Ruach, which means spirit. And, uh, and so, but we're told that he does it to what? Every person. He gives breath to the people on it. It's not just one person. And it just happened to go on from there. Now, John chapter 1 very clearly, you know the passage says what? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know what's interesting is in the Greek, it doesn't say that. In the, in the Greek, what it says is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. That's even, it's, it's important because it's even more definitive of who Jesus Christ is. It wasn't, the Jehovah Witness will tell you, that you should put A in there, and the word was a God. No, 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 no. See, this because they don't know the Greek. The Greek is very clear. God, that's his name. God was the word. So in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We're told that the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, was who? Yahweh. He was, he was the creator God. He was the one who created all things. And if Yahweh says he's the creator, then Jesus must be Yahweh. And in John chapter 8, you can go check me out on this later. John chapter 8, Jesus says, unless you believe I am, ego me, unless you believe I am, you're going to die in your sins. Now, I understand in, your, in New King James, King James, it's going to say, unless you believe I am he, but the he is in italicies, which means it's not there in the Greek. It's not there. And what it says is, unless you believe I am that I am, that's what it says in the Greek, unless you believe I am that I am, you will die in your sins. 
Jesus is God the creator. He is the one who breathes into us the breath of life. Where Jesus stated that in him was life. He is the one who has it all. So, do you believe that Jesus is God? What effect does that have upon your view of origins? Now, I hope, I hope today that all of you here today believe in six 24-hour days of creation. If you don't, I challenge you to take God's word as your authority and not man's word. Man's word will always change. And man's word is never true. Fully true. But God's word is always fully true. Secondly, what effect does it have upon your lifestyle in your marriage? If you know that God designed you to be a creature to, that's supposed to be productive and to work, and in marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church, are you seeking to do that in your life? If you're bucking against it in any manner, you're bucking against God. If you, if you don't want to work, I mean, I understand that, okay. I'm, I'm there. But that's when we buck against God, because God designed us to, to work. Now, you can be a, a workaholic, but that's why God said, you're going to need the seventh day to what? To rest. The fact that Jesus is the God of creation should not only affect my theology, it should also affect my work, my marriage, and my treatment of my body. Because God is the one who what? Created me. Seeing Jesus as a creator God should lead us into a desire to worship him. Now we're getting ready to, to transition into a time of communion to the Lord's table. It's a time when we recognize what Jesus Christ did for us. When he came to the earth to die on a cross to pay the penalty of our sins. I, I don't know how that could become any more magnified when we consider the fact that he is the creator God. That the one who created us would become incarnate so that he could die for us. If there's nothing that would ever lead you in your heart to worship, it ought to be that. Scarcely for a righteous man one will die adventure a good man. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, I was his enemy. I was spitting on him. I didn't care anything about him. And he died for me. And he loves me. And by his grace he will. Let's take some time. Oh, wait, we want to sing first, right? Let's turn in our hymn.